Good evening. This is Cinema 60. Take your sticking paws off me, you damn dirty ape! Stop, Dave. I'm afraid. Hi, Bart. Hi, Jenna. It's 1968. Ooh. A year before we landed on the moon. Groovy. We've been in space. We're, we're, you know, we're in the middle of a big space race here. Us versus the Russians. And uh, we're about to win definitively. USA. USA. The whole world was, was pumped up. We haven't talked too much about how the 60s were the space age. Maybe a little bit with our Cold War episode, but sci-fi was uh, really, really came into its own in the 60s. And uh, we've kind of pinpointed 1968 as the year that it uh, it entered adulthood. And Jenna, I know you're a big fan of uh, 60s sci-fi. You're, you're the biggest Star Trek fan I know. Oh, dang. Well, you know, the original series, Star Trek, this is a great year for, for Star Trek. And I think it totally ties into what we are going to be talking about and what we see during 1968 science fiction, which is kind of, you know, that, that a growing up point though. It's been, it's been growing, it's been getting smarter. And now suddenly we're seeing science fiction that instead of just being about little green men, we're getting into people expressing their own anxieties about current day through this lens of something that's a little bit, a little obscured and yet still pretty clearly exactly what we're talking about. And that's what I love about Star Trek, besides the the characters and the chemistry and the look and everything about it. I do love the episodes for being these little capsules of anxiety and introspection for a time that, you know, needed a lot of it. I mean, 1968, right? Everyone's protesting in the streets. Besides the space race, you have uh, this complete outpouring of violence and general anxiety about the end of the decade, things changing, technology, all of these things. And this was a crazy time for Star Trek, too. Star Trek was in its second season, which they had to have a whole campaign of letter writing in order to get the network to really take it seriously. People love Star Trek. People wanted Star Trek to continue, and, and the network thought it was some silly little space show, and they certainly... They gave it its second season. By its third season, they cut the budget pretty intensely and ended up killing it, which was, I think, I saw actually on uh, on Wikipedia of all places, it, they had called it, some someone called it one of TV's biggest blunders, which uh, it was. It was totally stupid, obviously, because how many Star Treks have followed up? But yeah, I mean, like, I think that the explosion of interest in this way of expressing ourselves through science fiction is remarkable and, and uh, important. TV was really the kind of main forum for sci-fi in the 60s, starting with the Twilight Zone, really. Like, I, I think uh, it, it's hard to overestimate the kind of influence the Twilight Zone had on uh, the national consciousness and, and uh, you know, sci-fi being used intelligently and making people think. And in 68, Twilight Zone was, was already done, but you still had shows like Lost in Space and Invaders going on and a, a lot of British stuff, a lot of British sci-fi like The Prisoner and Doctor Who and 
even the Avengers, like a lot of the, there's a lot of spy sci-fi crossover. But in 68, the, uh, the sci-fi craze started to uh, really show up in the movies. Like this was a year where, where uh, a lot of the big box office hits were sci-fi movies. 2001 A Space Odyssey was the top movie of the year and then Planet of the Apes was number nine and, and even Charlie which we're going to be discussing in a sort of uh, you know debatable whether you should consider that a sci-fi movie or not uh, that that came in at, at number 16 and this is also coming after the uh, the big Montreal 1967 World's Fair the Expo 67 which introduced all sorts of new technology to people and and People had their their head in the skies, maybe to to get away from all of the you know Vietnam and all the problems going on in, in you know in the real world. There's sort of this uh, you know, fantasy of escaping to the stars that seemed to appeal to a lot of people at the time. There was also quite a resurgence of science fiction in, in writing and magazines, and, and this was catching on again even after. And this is not that the 1960s invented science fiction, but we do get things like, you know, Isaac Asimov was still in his heyday in the 1960s, and uh, Philip K. Dick wrote Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep in 1968 specifically. It's also just, it was, as you said, it was kind of everywhere, and, and I think on people's minds in general. And obviously there were a ton of sci-fi movies coming out in 1968 that we didn't have time to talk about, but a majority of them are of the kind of old-school version of sci-fi that were, you know, tons of these low-budget things were coming out every year in the 60s. Uh, you got things with titles like the Astro Zombies and Voyage to the Planet of the Prehistoric Women and the Snake People and Mission to Mars. Every country was putting out things like this. In France, there was a comedy called Don't Play with the Martians. Argentina had something called Chez Avni, where aliens abduct a tango singer and uh, you know take him to various spots around the world. Lots of experiments gone wrong, like uh, in... in Czechoslovakia, there was Eye Justice, where uh, they're they're doing experiments on Hitler's brain in a jar, and uh, in Italy we had uh, King of Kong Island, where they're doing experiments on gorillas, and even in Mexico we had uh, the Batwoman, where their uh, mad scientist was doing experiments on wrestlers. All these things are uh, sort of typical of the kind of sci-fi that had been coming out all through the '60s, but the you know, the smart sci-fi really started to show up in, the, in 1968. You might notice immediately that one of the most iconic sci-fi films of 1968 we're not covering at all uh, in this episode, and that's Barbarella. Because, you know, it's not really the sort of thing that we wanted to concentrate on, because that's more of a, like a uh, space fantasy that's just a, an adventure movie that dressed up in, in sci-fi costumes and, and with spaceships, but it doesn't really have much on its mind other than getting the heroine into sexy situations. And it's clearly an important movie that we will cover at some point, but it didn't quite fit into the kind of heady sci-fi we wanted to deal with in this episode. And there were, you know, there were others we had to skip too, like uh, The Power, a, a George Hamilton movie where uh, it's kind of a precursor to Scanners and... Uh, Thunderbird 6, which is one of the movies that uh, spun off of the Thunderbird series, the UK uh, sci-fi puppet show. And we're really excited to do that super marionation stuff at some point, but uh, this isn't the episode for that. We're trying to focus in on this wave of sci-fi that, that was actually very popular in 1968 that actually was trying to get people to use their brains a little bit, you know, as, as opposed to a decade later with a, the next big 
sci-fi craze that Star Wars sparked off in 1977 is these were, you know, blockbuster sci-fis that were more this Barbarella sort of space adventure, space fantasy, and, and, uh, and not dealing with, uh, with the kind of philosophical issues that a lot of the most important, the biggest sci-fi movies of 1968 were dealing with. So the one thing that most movies that came out in 1968 had in common that we sort of noticed was this general anxiety about technology, which is a, an anxiety in general about what was happening in the world. Like you said, the space race, you had protests, you had civil civil rights protests, you had anti-war protests, you had people up in arms, you had as you mentioned the the world's fair I think is a is actually a really interesting one to bring up because I'm sure that that is as cool and as fantastic as that was and inspiring as that was. I am positive that that also created a whole rash of anxiety over what, what is to come and what's to be. Things were changing so quickly in the 60s that people were imagining, well, if things keep going in this direction, where are we going to head? So it's no wonder that, uh, that a lot of these, uh, these sci-fi stories end up in kind of a dystopian place with as much excitement as there is about uh, you know, these new technologies. It's also, you know, there's, there's an equal amount of fear that, uh, oh, are, are we dehumanizing ourselves? Are we going to, you know, are the robots going to take over? You know, are we putting too much faith in science and turning our backs on God too much? And, and uh, you know, all these questions were coming up and, and sort of play a role in, in all of these movies that we watched from 1968, from the dumbest to the, to the smartest. And even where we started, the movie The Green Slime. Open the door, you'll find the secret. To find the answer is to keep it. When you find something screaming across your mind, green slime. Which is uh, sort of your typical sci-fi monster movie, but even that has a lot of this fear and anxiety about, are we venturing too far? You know, do we really know what we're getting ourselves into? Leaping into space this way. It's actually a Japanese production directed by Kinji Fukasaku, but it's all English-speaking actors who, who are in it. It was filmed in Japan. All the monsters are played by little Japanese children in monster suits. It's basically part of the whole kaiju Godzilla thing. If it weren't for the Caucasian actors in it, this would very clearly fall in line with all the Godzilla things that were coming out. Like, Destroy All Monsters was the big Godzilla flick of, of 1968. But this one was kind of a takeoff on a series of Italian sci-fi movies that came out previous to this that were all based on the various adventures that these astronauts get up to in this futuristic space station. This one has to do with an asteroid that's headed towards Earth, and these hotshot rocket pilots have to go and blow up the asteroid. But when they land to plant the explosives, they pick up this green slime. The science guy ends up getting out of the ship and taking some samples. We have to break down that minute by minute because it is the funniest freaking part <laughs> of this entire... Otherwise... <laughs> Very straightforward and very not campy movie, even though it's completely ridiculous rubber monster kind of thing with women in silver little 60s mini dresses. But they're on that asteroid. The science guy says, oh, my God, look at this. And he bottles it. And he says, look at this thing. It's alive. 
And then the captain, who's Mr. Man's Man's Man, played by Robert Horton, is Commander Jack Rankin. He literally looks at this jar of this creature and he says, get rid of it. And the science guy says, this is a major discovery. And then the captain slaps the jar out of the guy's hand, just like tosses it. And then, and they're like, get in the car. It's like the meanest father move in the world. And the poor scientist just kind of like looks at his shoes. And meanwhile, this is the dumb captain having broken this glass jar of this creature. It splatters all over the captain himself. And then he's the one that infects everybody and brings it back. I think there's a certain acknowledgement that this super macho commander guy is not the good guy here, though. And there's a whole conflict between Commander Jack Rankin and his second-in-command, or actually the, the commander of the space station, Commander Vince Elliott, played by Richard Jekyll. We're on the side of the sort of sensitive 60s man, Commander Vince, who cares about his people and, and wants to do the right thing and just wants to sacrifice himself so that... His men are all safe and, and happy and tough guy. Robert Horton doesn't want to have anything to do with that sissy stuff. But it's worth acknowledging that in, in 1968, the super macho masculine tough guy commander is not the hero, really. Like, he sort of ends up being... But yeah, anyway, he is. He's totally... In spite of everything. But... <laughs> He's such a jerk. I mean, that's what really I, I couldn't stand about this, is he is such a prick, this guy. He's such a horrible captain. He barks orders without explanation. He doesn't care about his crew. He His crappy masculinity is what gets everyone screwed, because when he brings that green slime back to the space station, it gets, like, electrified. They put it in a decontamination chamber... But it turns out rather than killing any organic matter on, on all the astronauts' clothing, it actually, the this green slime soaks up the energy that's being shot at it right. and becomes, you know, grows and becomes more powerful. So, yeah, I mean, it's it's sort of a fluke of science in a way, but I'm happy to blame Robert Horton. Well, it's his, it's his clothing. So. <laughs> he hadn't slapped the thing out of the guy's hand like an evil stepfather. Like, what the hell? And then he also sits there and, and rags on his friend Vince constantly. He's like, I guess Vince at some point had tried to save one guy and then ended up killing 10. And they don't totally explain what happened mm -hmm. other than that. But I kind of feel for Vince anyhow. I'm like, he's probably trying to do his job, you know, like, or he's kind of a sad sack. Fine, whatever. But this captain is just so mean to him. He blames everyone for everything constantly. The only thing he wants to do is just shoot it even though when you shoot it, it seems to absorb the energy and then grow into this big one-eyed, or actually many-eyed, but one big red-eyed tentacle monster that zaps the crap out of people, which is actually kind of glorious. It makes everyone look like <laughs> like frozen, burnt crisps. This, this was, honestly, it was a joy to watch. Yeah, I mean, the monsters don't seem very scary at all, and it really is just sort of pure stupidity that gets people killed by these things. But it's, you know, it's fun to watch these astronauts act like idiots and, and, and get themselves killed. It has a great soundtrack. Yeah. The opening theme. Oh, my God. The theme song is amazing. I actually, I kind of want to go back now and just play the entire theme song for everyone because it is not that long and it is also amazing from start to finish. But in general, the incidental music is really good, too. Yeah. Um, everything is kind of this, like guitar twang to like sort of theremin-esque little like boing sound effects 
it's just so bizarre and in really works to make things kind of otherworldly but also hilarious quite frankly yeah i mean this rock and roll score really does not belong in a sci-fi movie and it's definitely the only movie we watched that sort of picked up at all on what was going on in uh in the music world in 1968 and the psychedelic rock sound but it's perfect Great Sam! <laughs> yeah i i looked up the guy as richard del vecchio sang this and godspeed he's my <laughs> new favorite singer i love this song the other thing that's going on in this movie is this sort of ridiculous love triangle, which I kind of I kind of liked. We've got my girl Luciana Paluzzi again here as a doctor. The same year she played a female doctor in that OSS movie we watched. I think it was the John Gavin one. She's the ex of Commander Jack, Robert Horton, but she's been seeing uh, the Commander Vince up on the space station for years. And Robert Horton comes up to the space station and just assumes that there's no way that she's actually interested in this wuss Vince. You know, my best friend, but total wuss Vince. <laughs> <laughs> she still wants me. And the way that he just assumes that, that all she wants is him, like the confidence that he throws around, is really... That's pretty entertaining, too. I'm not sure I would have enjoyed this movie as much without the ridiculous love triangle that they throw in there. Which, incidentally, was cut from the Japanese version of this movie. They cut, you know, like 15 minutes out of the film and, uh, and just totally cut the, the love triangle out completely. It's just sort of this military thing that's the, the astronauts versus the monsters sort of thing, and then that's it. And I think the three of them, are, our three leads, really kind of make this movie something special. I mean, something special is at least a generic enough term for it. I, I mean, I liked her in that I thought that she actually considering how short her mini dress is <laughs> and she's very attractive but like it, it's just that it you expect her to be a lot dopier than she actually is i thought she actually retained a lot of her dignity which was pretty cool but this crappy captain's always like i know you still love me and you know he's like hey bitch like looks like you put on some weight like wanna <laughs> Want to dump your fiance and get with me? And she's like, well, I don't know you ever would say that. And then, of course, in the end, she gets with him. <laughs> Does she? Is that how it ends? Uh, I mean, it sort of seemed that way. Uh, that wasn't explicit, but, you know, her fiance sacrifices himself finally to make up for the fact that he, I guess, you know, had failed in the past. And yeah, then it's just the two of them. And he gives her a wink, slaps her ass, and she's in the car, you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So this one, I mean, the anxiety here, as you mentioned, is really about being cavalier, I suppose. Jumping into space and knocking things out of people's hands because you're kind of a dick and ending up with God knows what in your space station. Everyone has to quarantine, which is another theme that comes up, which is sort of funny, too, talking about anxiety and quarantine. As we are recording this, we are both currently <laughs> quarantining because of COVID-19. Yeah, I mean, it does have a real theme of nature winning in the end. Like, we, we make all these technological advances, but this brainless algae sort of ends up destroying an entire space station just because it's drawn to the energy sources. It's not malicious at all. It's just an invasive species that, you know, a sterile space station can't handle, like, their drive to reproduce and feed and yeah technology does not win in the end with this movie it's sort of a fear of of perhaps that if electricity can bring us this what else could electricity bring us <laughs> yeah. 
And there's some good art direction on the uh, on the asteroid when they get off there. This whole movie looks brilliant. I love it. The little there's all of these little train sets of the space station and the creatures are are pretty good looking even though they are ridiculous. Yeah, they're a little cheap and the models are really cheap looking too. Like it's sort of you go into a Godzilla movie expecting this sort of thing, the cheap models and the creature costumes where you can see the zipper on the back. But we're far enough into the decent sci-fi era that, uh, you know, even from a 1968 perspective, I think that these sci-fi effects look pretty old-fashioned and, and corny. Except for that theme song, man. That theme song <laughs> brings it right back to 68. So uh, our next step up in terms of quality and ambition, a movie I actually like less than The Green Slime, but I have to give some credit to Project X. <laughs> by William Castle, the Ballyhoo King of, uh, of the 50s. You know, he did all the gimmicks, the, uh, the you know, the tingler where he, he, they electrify the, the seats in the theater. And he's uh, you know, sort of at the end of his career now, just directing sort of trippy sci-fi movies. And Project X, you know, if nothing else, is, is pretty trippy. It's, it's got some great psychedelic effects. I like Project X, actually. I thought it was delightful. I mean, everything's lit by, like, hot pink gels. <laughs> That's all it takes for me. <laughs> it's just such a convoluted story. It was basically that there was a spy who is cryogenically frozen after almost being killed, returning from a mission where he was going to learn about some deadly new weapon that was being developed in China, basically. Or the Cyanese, I think, is what they continually freak mm -hmm. out about. It took me a while to realize that this is meant to take place in the future and that he wasn't frozen from the past. <laughs> He's just frozen All from right. the general future, I believe, and only a couple years before the movie takes place. But the thing is that this... It's within 14 days. That's a big... Part of the plot that doesn't even matter. That's right. Yeah, that I think that's when I remembered. That's when I was like, oh, what? Huh? <laughs> like, it took me literally the entire movie. So then we'll get back to that. But anyhow, this guy, you know, he's like a genius kind of James Bond type. But also he was a professor for of history. And he studied the 60s, of course. And they show all these little slides about the turmoil and unrest from 1968. And they say, we have to wipe his mind in order to then plug into his mind while he dreams so that we can see what happened in his past because he was predisposed to, as a spy, there was some mechanism where he had to, you know, his, his mind gets wiped if he's under any duress. But we can reach into his subconscious through his dreams if we wipe his mind otherwise and make him believe that he's under that duress again. <laughs> And, and, like, that wasn't even me not explaining that well. Like, that's what it is. Like, it's just... So they said it, yeah, in, like, the in the 60s on a farm, and they tell him that he... They had to find a headline from the 60s newspaper 
that would be believable because, of course, I guess this guy knows every headline that was ever in the papers. <laughs> so they find like one bank that's been robbed and they say like they kind of like throw them in the street. And then all of the scientists that are all in their little white lab coats, they all like suddenly are amazing actors and they're like man you gotta get up we just robbed that bank and he thinks he's like in some 60s farm i don't know like am i giving too much detail at this yeah point? you, you <laughs> you've definitely gotten some of the details wrong but what you're saying doesn't make any less sense than what's Damn actually it. in the movie so yeah i guess it doesn't really what did matter. i get wrong I don't See, even know. Don't I can't know. even can't like he me. doesn't. <laughs> I can't. No, no. Let's 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 go with that. But uh, really, it's just an excuse to have this guy hooked up to these electrodes and us watching his dreams in liquid light show vision on this flat screen that this scientist who may or may not be a bad guy is watching, and and we get uh, some of these flashbacks or uh, to our hero Hagen. Uh, played by Christopher George, so another uh, he he was another Western TV star, just like our boy uh, Robert Horton from the last movie. Nineteen sixty eight was a real transition from TV sci fi to movie sci fi, and I think we're still sort of caught up in this kind of TV aesthetic. Although, you know, producers weren't necessarily sure they wanted to get big movie stars to be in their sci fi movies because it is still sort of considered kiddie stuff. But anyway, we, we see these flashbacks of Hagen in Sino-Asia doing his spy stuff with this other spy guy, Gregory Galea, who, uh, you know, also may or may not be a bad guy. And, you know, sometimes some of these flashbacks are just the two of them running around these rocky cliffs with this, you know, crazy light show on top of it. Other times there's this underwater rescue scene from this underwater lair that's definitely hand animated yeah i was gonna say other times they're like Hanna Hanna Barbera. Barbera animation sequences in place of sets yeah it looks just like johnny quest but they've got this psychedelic light show going on on top of it so they think oh people won't notice that this is drawn. everything's sort of inverted it's not even like psychedelic light show though it, it's just crappily inverted like that was it that's all they did they just inverted the footage and then they slapped a color wash over it so it's like purple and green just neon green negatives is a representation of, of what your memory looks like. So it's, you know, it's, it's great. I, I, uh... <laughs> That's what I said. It kind of sucks, but it's this great. Is, I don't know. I don't know how to be critical of this movie. What, what did you like about it? <laughs> the best thing about this movie is when they basically, every time they go into his subconscious to try and extract these memories that are suppressed about what happened to him and, and what this, you know, plan is, they can only be in there for some set amount of time. It's like three minutes or something like that. Something's pretty short. Otherwise, his head's going to explode, basically. Like, they, <laughs> they say, like, something he's, it'll, you know, something terrible will happen or he'll, his mind will just cave in on itself. But what ends up happening when eventually they have some kind of government official that is desperate to get this information out of this guy so that they can prepare for whatever is going to happen. They bake him a little too long, a minute or something, and his subconscious gets set loose from his own brain and then goes berserk and seeks out revenge upon mm -hmm. everyone in this little set. It's definitely a Forbidden Planet Monster from the Id style creature. Where it's, you know, just this hand-drawn entity. Screaming face. 
killing people. Yeah. <laughs> that was great. I loved it. I love that. And then I also the ending of this movie where essentially with a, you know, spoiler for Project X, they <laughs> show that what the big weapon is, is a virus <laughs> that they've yeah. implanted in this man. And the doctors are like, in the most stoic 60s salary man kind of delivery. Well, like now we've all been infected because we've all been around him for several days. And so, well, all we have to do is quarantine this entire military base and then sit around and die. And he lists yeah. <laughs> like every way that they're going to die. And, and it only gets more and more and more and more and more horrendous. And the government officials who are also stuck in here are like, wait, what? Like, we're just going to sit here and die? Like, that's horrible. Like, no. And the doctor's like, nope, nothing to do about it. Sit and die, you know, like. <laughs> Which, of course, then is when we, at least I realize and maybe Bart, that their whole thing is that, well, we've only been exposed for a set amount of days. We thought it was seven, but the guy was frozen for four. So we actually have more time to figure it out. Yeah, so the bubonic plague that he's uh, infected with was uh, in remission. So we, we've got a few days to solve our problem. We thought we're at the end of the line here. But thanks to cryogenics, we're all saved. I mean, and thank God. There is this horrible woman in this one. Actually, and again, Green Slime did this better. But the, the horrible love triangle in this one with this Karen Summers who... She, I don't even know what she was there. She's basically there for like like women breeding. She was completely useless in this. They just they felt like they had to have a woman in this movie, so they introduced her in an even shorter like dress. Was, she, then, <laughs> yeah, she had no function whatsoever. She had some sort of Germanic or Swedish accent, and that seemed to be the sum total of her appeal. Played by Greta Baldwin, whoever she is. <laughs> She's just there to be hot and distract the main guy being some hot lady. And I do love in the end, they basically have to then give the main guy a whole new personality in life because his brain's been so fried. <laughs> and they're like, but he's, you know, he'll he'll be happy now. And what is he? Something really bland. They turn him into like a farmer or something. And she's sitting there waiting like she's she's getting a new puppy, essentially. Like they're like wheel him <laughs> out to her and they're like, we did the paperwork for your marriage three days ago. I hope that's okay. And she's like, oh my gosh, yeah, I love it. It's so stupid. And it's also, in a way, this movie is is perhaps the most conservative <laughs> of all of them, right? Like, I, I feel like there are clear anxieties here over what was happening in the 60s, all of that footage about, you know, civil rights and protesting and, you know, the Red Scare crap. Crime and violence has been eliminated from this future which is why they're all stressed out about what the Chinese are going to do. Because they're like, oh, they're going to destroy this, this peace that we've had for so long. And yeah, a big section of this movie is proving why recreating the 60s to retrieve the memories from this guy is important because, uh, you know, they show the, all these clips of things that were happening right, you know, in the mid-60s. And, you know, all this unrest, all this violence and all the protests and how awful it was that people were getting beaten in the streets by the police and, uh, you know, all this. And Oh, right. It's, it's the right stressful anxiety for him to feel the fear so that he has the dreams about what happened, right? Yeah. But it's clearly trying to make some kind of commentary on what's happening now and this vision of a peaceful future where, you know, everybody's happy and uh, it's not very convincing at all. And I guess that's part of the, you know, 
this whole sci-fi thing is for the, the teenagers, for the kids, so you're trying to, to appeal to the counterculture there. You don't get any cool songs like in the Green Slime. But you do get some trippy LSD visuals and uh, trying to connect to the protest movements and, and that sort of thing. But Yeah, not terribly unlike our LSD movies episode. You also then have this sort of ending with a bunch of adults talking about how great it is for submissive women and strapping young men to get together and get married and settle down and have 4.5 children. You know, like, cool, great future. <laughs> but comparatively the next movie is way darker and way angrier and uh includes monkeys yeah it's planet of the apes Presumably, most everybody has seen. Everybody in 1968 saw it, that's for sure. This was the first time I've ever seen it. Really? How about some of the remakes and takeoffs? Nope. No, this is... Never bothered. You're you're a complete ape virgin. Yep. Except for that one episode of The Simpsons. Well, so what did you think? Clearly, you must have had some impression of what Planet of the Apes was like. Uh, Seeing it for the first time, how did it compare to, to your idea of what it was? Three things. Okay. Number one, it reminded me so much, and I, I knew the ending of this movie. This is one of those things where you, I have, you can't, it's impossible to live in society and be a functioning member uh, who cares about pop culture and not know the vast majority of details about this movie. So it certainly wasn't, I wasn't surprised by the plot. You know, that I already knew. Uh, I knew the ending, of course, and... It reminded me so much of the episode I shot an arrow into the air of the Twilight Zone. <laughs> Which one was that? It's when the one where uh, the three guys in a spaceship crash land and they think they're on some unknown planet and they oh, it's a desert and they only have a little bit oh, of water. Yeah. And, and they, they end all up kill all each other. <laughs> killing each other and then the guy makes it up the cliff and he sees Reno, Nevada or whatever. He's like, you know, they uh-huh. never left Earth. And he starts yeah. screaming like, oh, God, what did I do? So this was kind of like that. And, and you know, and Rod Serling wrote the screenplay here with other people, I guess. But yeah, I mean, it, it does. It has a real Twilight Zone feel to it. It's, you know, it definitely has that what if structure. It's like, what if apes become the dominant species on Earth instead of humans? Because humans have you know, destroyed themselves through nuclear war. You know, it, it's based on a, on a pretty popular novel at the time. And Rod Serling's script was actually unfilmable, according to the director, the Franklin J. Schaffner. <laughs> I guess it required, a, you know, too much of a budget, mainly. They brought in another guy to rewrite the movie so that the ape society was more primitive, mainly so that they wouldn't have to spend so much money on this movie. I love the primitive society. I actually thought that was, I mean, it's like sort of a cop-out as far as budget, <laughs> but it it's always nice to see something futuristic that looks dirty and used. That's like what made Star Wars so good. Yeah. You know what I mean? It, it, and it's, it's also like, it also really worked as being this sort of solid commentary on just how not clever we all are, despite what we all think about ourselves. You know, like the, the, these monkeys, 
as as us as as the future of humankind having already you know it's this endless cycle of stupidity like here we are we we build all the way up to nuclear war we nuke ourselves because we're too stupid now we got like whatever happens in between monkeys are now us and here they are making the same dumb decisions based on religion rationale and in fear of the idea that the masses might gain autonomy through their own education so I thought it was actually sort of brilliant by having this be so primitive. It kind of reflects on exactly where we were in the 60s and, and where we still are now. You know, we think we're we always think we're like, this is the best it'll ever be. And the future will be bright. And you look back at it and you're like, wow, that was <laughs> that was like sticks and stones compared to where we are even a couple of years later. Well, thematically, the primitiveness of this society is essential because the apes have created a world where they're afraid of science. They don't want to repeat the mistakes of humankind uh, and destroy themselves. So they're just opposed to science in any way. And uh, you know, I think that's why they really like lean on religion so much. The Dr. Zayas, the, the president of Planet Ape. <laughs> <laughs> the, the grand chancellor of Planet Ape. Knows that all the science stuff that... Well, I, do we need to go into the plot at all? Charlton Heston's a... a uh, you know, shoots into space with these three other astronauts to a distant star in Orion, a distant solar system, and crash lands on this planet 2,000 years later, according to their calculations, and apes are in charge. The humans are lesser beings. They're sort of the livestock of the apes. They're even less than. Like, apes don't even use them as slaves because they're too unreliable and, and wild. They just sort of hunt them and, and cage them and... Uh, Know, keep them in, in zoos, but they can't even domesticate humans because they're too animalistic. So when Charlton Heston shows up and he can actually talk, these humans that are on the, the, the planet of the apes can't talk at all. They've lost that ability. He has to prove that he's from another planet. You know, And Dr. Zayas, it turns out, believes him, knows he's telling the truth or understands that you know, this science stuff he's talking about is a reality, but he knows that for the, the safety of this of their world, they have to not go in the direction that humankind went and, or, or else it'll end up with them blowing themselves up just like humans did. And so he ends up becoming this like really horrible fascist religious jerk. I mean, that was the other thing I loved about this movie is how much of a takedown of religion it was. That to me felt kind of Twilight Zone. That felt kind of Rod Serling to me. That's something I didn't expect. The pure hatred for religion this movie has. <laughs> as much as these, you know, all of these people are afraid of science and it's not wrong, you know, as we see in the end. It's certainly uh, screwed over the planet Earth a couple of times, but this religious zealot is keeping things from people and that's what Charlton Heston is raging against throughout this entire film is I thought a really interesting sort of juxtaposition of thought, you know, like talking again about this, as, as you were mentioning earlier about this idea of can science replace morality? But this movie seems to say that religion isn't even good enough for morality in its own. <laughs> I thought this was a pretty positive pro-science movie. Except science is what destroyed humanity. Yeah, but that's inevitable. <laughs> <laughs> It does, like, for a dumb-seeming movie where it's just a bunch of people dressed up like apes, it really does tackle some interesting issues because it's sort of saying that humans are both 
these you know wild animal type creatures that we see in the cages in this planet but they are also the geniuses who can create rockets that can shoot into space and sort of dealing with that whole contradiction that these creatures that are capable of creating this technology are not capable of utilizing it without destroying themselves. But Dr. Zaius is just as bad. Like, I don't think Dr. Zaius is a good guy at all. Like, he is then seeing, having known what happened, tries to hold everybody back for their own good and, of course, creates this society of also people that are being lied to by uh, who they trust and, and also that are persecuting the two people that are interested in finding the truth. Because he goes mm. after Cornelius and Zira who are just trying their best, you know, like they're just, they're just interested in, oh my God, like, did you know that this could even happen? And, and Dr. Zayas is like, yeah, and now you need to leave society forever. <laughs> so it's not fair. I mean, like the true heroes of this movie are Cornelius and Zira. I think Charlton Heston is just sort of like, I just, I, I gotta say, like, I, he is so creepy in this film. Yeah. I do not understand why you would cast him in anything he comes across as such a creep like hardcore yeah well it's very intentional like he's such a jerk to his to surviving co-astronauts there like and it, it sort of comes out that he he agreed to the 700 year trip across the universe because he hates humans and doesn't want to have anything to do with them so he's glad to start a colony and on the, on the other side of the universe and uh, so he's a total misanthrope that doesn't make for a really likable hero. No, he's awful. Like there are multiple times where I literally just said, you <laughs> <laughs> just the way that he smiles. Like there's just, he just comes across as so creepy. I, I don't know if it's cause I do know too much about Charlton Heston, but I, I also just that he says a couple of lines to there's that woman that he gets caged with Nova. Yeah. And he wants to, to kind of dominate her as his sex toy. And, and also, rage against the the society that's keeping him in a cage and i'm like dude like <laughs> look at yourself man like what the hell yeah but he still manages to be that square jawed american hero or when he's trying to escape from the cage we want him to escape when he's struggling to to be free to to survive you're you're kind of on his side and you take your paws off me you damn dirty apes he's a creep I think he's a good old-fashioned Hollywood movie star, and he's uh, sort of he plays that type really well, and is sort of perfect for this movie. He's what everyone thinks Captain Kirk is, but Captain oh, no. Kirk, the character, is nothing like that. He has touches of it, but the character William Shatner is like that one hundred percent. But yeah, he's this sort of typical blustery dude. I don't know. I mean, like I, I'm with him on his sort of search for truth and, and whatnot. But I, I mean, I don't know. I was much more sympathetic to Cornelius and Zira, who were both very cool and chill and nice, and I felt bad for them. Well, in certain ways, I think this is the most cynical movie we watched and yeah. the most pessimistic and the most fearful for the future of mankind. You know, arguably, we've, we've definitely got... Every one of these is, is uh, you know, has its own breed of, of cynicism and, uh, and, and fear for the future. But this one really just, there just doesn't seem to be any positive outcome for us. It's, you know, we're damned if we do, we're damned if we don't. 
I feel like it's it's also one of the few movies that you get out of 60s America that's about how dumb America is. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> and very very specifically called out of America too, you know, and it's not it's not just about like the plight of humans, it's about the stupidity of the Cold War, I think probably is a, the main thing in everyone's minds, but no accident that it's a Statue of Liberty that shows up at the end of this movie. Right. Though I have to say, I want why the horses got to get played like that? I want Planet of the Horses. Those guys didn't change at all. Well, horses know their place. <laughs> Damn. So next we move on to another pretty big hit from 1968 that's only kind of tangentially a, a sci-fi movie. It's Charlie, directed by Ralph Nelson. Ravi Shankar. Yeah. It's so 60s. I mean, in a way, this is this movie is everything I love and hate about 60s movies. It's so <laughs> like like the you get that love montage where it's just this gentle Ravi Shankar music playing um, you know, in the background, and you get these long lingering shots of leaves fluttering on the trees and you know these these narrations of the two lovebirds saying uh, you know sweet nothings to each other it's such a time capsule like it's so 1968 more than any of these other movies and it is i mean it's set in 1968 it's set in the current world so that's part of the reason like the the rest of these have enough sci-fi going on in them so that it feels like Clearly made in the 60s, but set in another time, so they're a little bit more timeless for that reason. Charlie is is so of its time. And you, you kind of hated this movie, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think we should we should tell everyone first. I mean, this is it's set in the 60s, but it's based on Flowers for Algernon, so this is a 50s book. Yeah, Charlie is a, a, a well-meaning, mentally challenged individual who... Um, who's been working with his teacher, played by Claire Bloom, Alice. And uh, she sees, you know, this potential in him because he's sort of always striving to do better. He, you know, he can't read very well. He can't write very well. And, but he's struggling to be better. And, and he's been going to night school with her for five years or something. And when she finds out about this uh, scientific experiment where, you know, this drug and this surgery where it can triple the IQ of, of somebody. They, they've tested it on uh, Algernon, the, the, the mouse, and, and the mouse has become, you know, extremely intelligent and can, you know, make its way through a maze, and, you know, just, just like that. And so a lot of the, the movie is, you know, Charlie undergoes a surgery and we watch him competing over and over with Algernon to see who can get through the maze first. And eventually, you know, the, the, the super intelligence kicks in and Charlie can beat Algernon and then becomes, like smarter than his teacher and smarter than all the scientists who created this medical procedure and finds out that being smart isn't all it's cracked up to be. And uh, his teacher, who um, would never be romantically interested in Charlie, once he becomes super intelligent, they, uh, she decides, you know, after, of course, he, Charlie, when he becomes smarter, emotionally, he's still underdeveloped. So his feelings towards his teacher are you know, sort of become you know, very lustful and he 
there's a scene where he practically rapes her, and, and that's pretty uncomfortable. But then he goes off and, and joins a motorcycle gang and does a lot of drugs and, and joins a... It's, <laughs> that's an amazing montage, too, where he, he's... There's this weird <laughs> montage in the middle of this. I mean, talk about stuck in time. It's like... It looks like when you have a computer setting that's called retro montage, like it, it's just like these sort of sliding rectangles of snippets of scenes happening as the Ravi Shankar soundtrack intensifies. Like, yeah, it's like he's like riding motorcycles. He's smoking a joint. He's reading a book. He's listening, grooving to the music. Dressed as Austin Powers. I think he's wearing an Austin Powers suit. He's got kind of a pointed beard, but his uh, his outfit is, is totally Austin Powers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's just very, it's like, it's like the most cliche hippy dippy kind of shit. And I think, so that's kind of what annoyed me about this. It, it's so superficially arty. There's no sincerity in this, which I think was a feat. Because you have something that's an inherently empathetic and sad story about somebody who, you know, and of course, uh, spoiler again for something I think is fairly well-known story is that he gains this intelligence and then finds out that it's only a, a, an ephemeral effect and that in fact, I, I believe that d the mouse dies. So it's sort of implied that he's going to die soon. Like he gets this sort of burst of intelligence and wisdom and, and creativity and then you burn out just as as quickly because it's not tested medicine and they shouldn't have tested a human being anyhow yeah. <laughs> but the thing that annoyed me is that just like the i don't know if it's the casting of it's cliff robertson as charlie i i just who won the academy award that year for his performance in this Ugh, really <laughs> yeah <laughs> He was terrible in this. I, I don't know. And I can't tell if it was him or the script. I thought his acting was fine. They make such a big deal about his emotional development. I just didn't believe he had any emotions. Not just that he was underdeveloped emotionally. He was just like, again, it was like male 60s stoicism at its best. He doesn't show you any sort of empathetic moments. Like that once he becomes intelligent, he just becomes your most cliche lame man. Like he tries to assault her. He goes out and beds a bunch of women and then sits around smoking a joint and reading poetry. It's like, this is intelligence. <laughs> like, I don't know. I didn't see anything that made me really sympathetic. And then they keep showing you this montage of his, him as a grown man sort of playing in a playground to, to stand in as this, like, I don't know, representation of his true self. But that's bull you know i mean like what does that tell that doesn't tell you anything it doesn't represent anything it's just someone frolicking in a playground like i that's to me i it just felt like i don't know if maybe this is just goes back to the fact that in the 60s there wasn't really much empathy for and i granted this was a a fairly big step i suppose in a way to, to humanize anyone who wasn't neurotypical but it felt like they really had no empathy for him as someone who, when he wasn't smart, what wasn't a genius at least, um, still had emotions and still would care about that. Like, I mean, he they kind of give you a, scenes of him at parties where he 
is feeling bad for other people that he sees and because he knows that people are, are harassing them or calling them morons or, or being derogatory because they don't treat him like a real human being. And so he gets, uh, that's a, one of the few effective moments is in this restaurant. He sees some busboys being harassed by patrons and he goes and helps the guy instead of laughing at him for his, his mistakes. The whole movie feels like it's held back by the biases that it's trying to dispel. You know what I mean? No, how do you mean? It's it's digging at this idea that, that people who are not neurotypical are worthy of empathy. And yet it doesn't show him any real empathy or any real depth when he, he is not a genius. It's once he's a genius, he becomes this sort of typical stoic 60s man. And then when they show him otherwise, all they can do to represent him is playing in a playground with a child and, and rolling around on the grass. Like, that's it. That's all they have for him. They, you know, they sort of show him as being bullied and they show him as trying to do his best and failing and then hating himself. But they don't give him anything. Yeah, I mean, it, it sets up a lot of unrealistic situations where he's... His co-workers at the bread factory where he uh, he sweeps up or all they they keep playing pranks on him and are just really unnecessarily cruel. Like it doesn't feel authentic at all. It feels like, oh, here we're just we'll just have these characters be really cruel to Charlie so we feel bad for him. But that's all it really does to develop his character or try and gain our sympathy for him. It's just to show how tough it is for him in this world to be a little deficient. In, in the brains department. But that's the thing. I mean, like the whole point of this is to sort of say that he was better off as he was and, and being content in, in a way and not knowing because then once he gains the intelligence, uh, he essentially realizes just how miserable everything is anyhow <laughs> and how much happier he was with a simple life. But I don't know. It sure didn't look happy. Yeah. I mean, it's got some, it's sort of playing with these apple of knowledge sort of ideas that, we were, we were happier when we were, you know, Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. But once we've tasted the, the fruit of knowledge or, you know, there's no going back. We, you know, we were able to make our own decisions and, and sort of make progress, you know, whatever that may mean. Advance human thinking and, and whatever. Because it all, in, in this movie, intelligence uh, equals science. Like, when he's smart, he becomes like a nuclear physicist or something. But mainly it's just so he can shoving the faces of these scientists who gave him this opportunity to see the other side, to taste this fruit of knowledge. And, you know, he gets to show them up and point out what a cruel thing it was that they did to him. What did you like about this movie? You like this movie. I found it hard to sit through this time through. Like, I always... I, it had been a long time since I'd seen it, and I always had, you know, fairly fond memories of it. I don't know. It, it feels like, you know, sci-fi for dummies in a way. It's like, this is sci-fi for people who... Not for dummies, but this is sci-fi for people who don't like sci-fi, where we're sort of going to tackle some some interesting ideas and like what it means to be human and, and use this, this sort of miracle of science to, to get at these ideas. But we're going to make all of the dramatic beats really obvious and make our points in really heavy-handed ways. And, and so, yeah, I mean, it's sort of good in a prestige movie sort of way, but not a movie I can watch and enjoy now. Yeah, it's just so pretentious. I just felt like it, it was... The, I guess maybe part of it is the fact that it's so pretentious is that it, it feels like it doesn't do any true justice to people that actually have 
intellectual disabilities. I don't know. It was just too insincere. And yeah, it might be the script. It might not be the acting. I just, I hate things where, where they, where they're trying to show something simple. And so they, they show a child as if children don't have complex emotions. <laughs> I guess that's part of it. It's like, you could have shown this in such a better way. You could have shown him caring for the mouse, which he does. And that would have been, I think, more symbolic and more emotional than this idea that he used to sit alone and stare at a wall and, you know, now he knows too much. <laughs> well, I mean, and in a way, it's also a coming of age story. So that is like, I feel like a lot of equating Charlie before the surgery as a child is you know, working at this metaphor that childlike innocence is great and growing up is tough and Charlie has to grow up really quickly and uh, realizes that it's not all it's cracked up to be so I guess a part, and maybe that's it I resent that childlike innocence is equated with someone who has like no insight and, and no emotional interior because he would have had that he would have had feelings he would have felt bad when people were mean to him he would have he he would have known that eventually that that you know these guys were playing these mean pranks on him and they're not his best friends like I feel like I don't know it's just it was too simple it was too simple and then it got too intelligent which was just felt insincere to go from it felt like it bought into the idea that intellectual disabilities equals you know, all the derogatory things that they call him. Like, it, it, the movie doesn't do anything to dis dispel the fact that people who are disabled are... It makes a whole show about how they're real people, but it doesn't do anything in its portrayal to, to show you that. And that's what I kind of resented. Well, he's not a human being. He's a metaphor, and that's the real problem there. Like, I don't think it even really addresses disability at all. I mean, it, it shows you the teacher in school, Alice in school, with the... Uh, a bunch of uh, you know people who actually go to uh, school for people with disabilities, and uh, you know it's it's sort of the, uh, just another sappy scene where it's trying to humanize people in the most you know obvious way imaginable, and it it uh, you know, it comes off a little uh, as you're saying insincere. I guess that is the real problem with this movie. But as as an expression of anxiety, and it's, and you know it is sort of it's it's. It's an older one that, of course, is is still relevant to 68. And I can definitely see why this would have struck people. Because this, this was, as you said, a very well-received film. It's one of those movies where I feel like people remember it really fondly. But if they were to watch it now, they'd realize that, that oh, this isn't quite the movie I remembered. And that's that was actually my experience with it, too. It's like, when I saw this years ago, I was, uh, I wasn't jaded enough to see how uh, cliche written and you know sappy and, and obvious it is but now now i do and i'm ready to to move on to the, our next film well that also has mice which is je t'aime je t'aime best known for Hiroshima Mon Amour and last year at Marion Bad, uh, some of the like really dense, difficult French art movies from the late 50s, early 60s. 
this is not as well known as those, but it, it tackles a lot of the same issues. Like it's all about memory. His body of work in general is, is about memories, I would say, and he, and he just approaches it from all different angles. And in this one, he uses a time travel angle to explore this failed suicide's memories and the events leading up to him trying to kill himself. Did you like this one? What'd you think? I really enjoyed it, and yet I feel like I need to rewatch it immediately because I don't know what happened. (laughs) (laughs) But at the same time, I mean, this is a perfect use of Renee's style and his editing style specifically. That it's so, I mean, this this kind of French new wave art house stuff is just takes to science fiction so well. Like, it works so beautifully. And to have a character who... And this story, too, is is basically, and it was an inspiration for Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. So if that might encourage anyone to watch this after we've called it Art House Hell film. Um, But it is actually quite quite interesting. You know, who better of a guinea pig than someone who already doesn't care if he dies? So I thought it was already a better justification for human uh, experimentation than Charlie managed to give you and... uh, yeah, they say that like, well, we sent this mouse back in time for one minute uh, from a year from the day that we did it. And it, it's been fine. And we want to now test it on people. <laughs> and they take him to this wonderful machine that looks like uh, like an inflatable rocks, basically. And I wasn't totally sure if it was meant to be actual rocks or if it was meant to be inflatable. It's like one of those like, <laughs> you're not sure if the set. No, it's inflatable. Was was. <laughs> Because he's trying to get out when he's when he's stuck inside there and he's like squishing against the wall. Yeah, so it's, it's it's supposed to look like a human brain, really. That this time machine that he gets inside with the you know spikes sticking out of the top, which shows you just what kind of sci-fi what, what technology you've got going here. It's really not interested in the actual science of, of this stuff at all. Which is why it's brilliant and why it's believable. I don't need yeah. to. I don't need to hear your your justification for how they figured out how to send somebody back in time for for one minute, like. I just like stick me in that brain. Let's do it. You know, like I'm just I'm ready to get to get it done. And then, of course, when they when they do this true human, the machine messes up and he ends up getting sort of stuck back in time. And so he experiences out of order multiple minutes from throughout his entire life. And they can't seem to get him out of the machine and everything kind of goes wrong from there. And yeah, it, it follows back on his relationship with this with his old girlfriend Katrine. It follows disjointedly and nonlinearly the their love story from the beginning to the breakup to her death to his the aftermath of him trying to live without her. And it sort of implies he, he at some point he says that he kills her because she has a disease, some terminal disease, but then he doesn't and then he takes it back. But then I there was no point in which you see her struggling from the disease right like i don't that i didn't catch at all well no her her disease is depression like that's what she's struggling with the whole time she's just extremely depressed like she has no she doesn't want to leave the house yeah she doesn't want to do anything she has no will to work yeah and you know in spite of that she's really kind of a funny charming character and goes off on these interesting tangents about how uh, maybe cats were created in god's image and humans were created to be in the service of cats and just she has the mind of a depressive person who just you know will 
spit out any old shit they think of just because why not who cares this is this is a funny idea so i'll say it and and so in in that respect i i think they get her right and you know he, he's traveling back in time so we see her like you know depressed and not getting out of bed we also see her at her best moments too and like memories when he travels back in time he'll go back to the same moment and, and things will have changed a little bit or parts of his dreams will have seeped in like things that could not have possibly been there when it actually happened like a you know like a naked lady in a bathtub in, in the middle of his office will, will be will show up or uh you know the mouse that he's been um, traveling through time with will show up on the beach with him in, in one of his memories and I mean, I think the idea is is that men are not mice. Like mice have mem, you know, their memories only last a minute. So you can successfully send a, a mouse back in time a minute, but but men's brains are much more complicated, and their memories are much more convoluted and, and you know, you know, combined with with fantasies and false memories and and things that just you know aren't true or or maybe half true and. Yeah, I mean, I think that's part of the problem with this movie is you try and piece together all of these all these moments from his life to see what went wrong and what you know why he wanted to kill himself and why he felt he was to blame for possibly killing Katrine, although that's never clear whether he really did or not. Um, you do see him leaving her sleeping in bed with the there's a a a, uh, a gas heater where the flame goes out and he. He says he he left the apartment um, knowing that she would get asphyxiated, and, but we don't know that that actually happened. Yeah, it's trying to piece together a person's life just based on random memories they've had, and it's uh, a complex and rewarding movie for that reason, but it, it's hard to wrap your brain around the first time through, or the second time through. This is my second time. Yeah, I, I sort of settled on he might have killed her and that he broke up with her knowing that she was not in a good mental state to have dealt with it so he didn't directly kill her and i don't think that he would have directly walked out leaving her there but he sort of knew having walked out that this that this would have caused this that this could have been a possible outcome yeah but and then i wasn't sure if if it was a time loop in that his own suicide was actually caused by the time traveling because once he gets caught in this loop, he starts to lose it because now he's sitting here experiencing all of these ups and downs of the relationship at the same time, which is the brilliance of it too. I, I think that, you know, this, this, as you said, the fragmented time and, and expressions of love and whether or not it was real seems to be a true obsession for Renee. And so to see the sort of the, the cycles that we're repeating and the and punishing our each other and ourselves with, I thought was it's a story that doesn't need to be told linearly. Experiencing everything at once isn't any less painful or any more beautiful than when you experience it, you know, over the years. In a way, it's actually like it's heightened the same way that whenever we dredge up memories over and over, happy or sad we're sort of living in those moments over and over again. So I, I found that really interesting. I thought, I thought this was a really interesting meditation on, on just ex how we experience relationships and how we experience time. But yeah, I wasn't sure if, if his suicide was caused by the time travel and by the torture of having to relive all of this at the same time. I didn't, that, I, that wasn't even a possibility that I considered, but now that I think about it. Because we see him dead and then we see the scientist dragging him back in and you're not sure if 
that's even that's like the the suicide or if that was you know he's stuck in the time travel machine and now he suddenly appears outdoors yeah i mean that the ending is <laughs> anything i say would just be a speculation but it is almost <laughs> this movie's built on speculation though the, that's kind of the brilliance of it that there is the whole things the whole relationships of speculation as as any of our relationships are i mean especially like things where you you break up and then you're sitting there and you're mulling over one day like like what did happen even if if you were the one to have broken up like where where did things go wrong where did you come come up with this idea that you made the right decision did you make the right decision what did you even make the decision i mean we we every time we replay these things we rewrite the narrative in our own head so eventually something that i mean i'm always amazed like if I I kept a, a journal for a time and years and years ago and sometimes I've gone back and looked at this and then read stories about like ex-boyfriends and been like wow that guy was horrible <laughs> you know why did I put up with this this is so strange you know like and I when I and I think back on it I don't even even though maybe it's not the fondest of memories it was it wasn't as terrible as the words that I wrote that weren't even written in malice like i'd be like you know this happened today and i'm like what <laughs> you let him do what like that's horrible this person is terrible so it's like it's funny how in a way these things will even soften over time which is why i thought maybe to to have to ex re-experience all of this at once with all of the highs and all of the lows can happening at the same time might you know drive you crazy it might drive you to well, suicide Especially if it's the love of your life. Yeah, and I think that one of the, the less ambiguous things about this movie is that he can't get out of the time machine because he doesn't want to. He wants to keep reliving these memories. He wants to remember Katrine at her best and at her worst and trying to figure out what go, went wrong. And, and, you know, he he's, he's sort of obsessively reevaluating re his past and it's not until like you know one of the last memories we see him have is him pointing the gun at his chest and firing and then at that point we're outside of the time machine and the scientists say nope he's not coming back we've lost him we might as well give up it's been hours we you know we're not going to get this guy back and it's I, I mean i think there's something in that act of him reliving the memory of him firing the gun it's him saying no i I want to put these memories behind me. I, I don't want to keep experiencing this over and over again. And that's what kind of frees him from the time loop. That's what gets him unstuck from time. Why he you know, ends up outside on the lawn, I, I, I have no theories about that. But it really does seem like you know, it's, he's sort of in, in control. Like he's, he's had the second chance to reevaluate you know, all the things that, that led up to a suicide. And he's determined again that that's... That that's still how he would end it. You know, he, he he still would. The conclusion to all of this is that yeah, if I had it all to do over again, I would kill myself again, and that uh, and that somehow manages to free him. I like that. It's also like it's so definite, and I can't think of. And maybe I haven't watched enough Renee movies, but I can't think of any other movies of his that are are so finite. Mm. Well, you. you you just have to settle on a theory with his movies. I mean, in last year, Marion Bad, if you just decide, okay, a rape happened last year, 
And if you watch the whole movie through that lens, you can see, okay, this fits there, this fits there. So if you, you know, there, it's, it's, his movies are really open to interpretation. But this one's real explicit in that end. Yeah, I, I think so. In that way, it's almost more linear. But it's also me sort of having seen this for a second time, not wanting to just, you know, shrug my shoulders and say, no, I'll never make any sense out of this thing. It's me saying, okay, this is me trying to make some sense out of it. Another person watching this movie might not, you know, see it that way at all. And I think that's one of the things that's, that's great about Renee's movies. They're, they're challenging, they're frustrating. And this one, you know, follows such a random pattern that it almost seems like it's, you know, it's slapped together, but it's not. Like, there's, there is a real sense to the randomness of these memories and how, like, these memories, a lot of them don't seem to have much to do with anything else and it seems like and I think that's part of the genius and that it's it's you, it might be hard to give this movie credit for being able to come up with such non sequitur memories the way it does like you know most movies like this would be tempted to have every every flashback mean something but this one really just sort of feels like no this memory is you know, just a memory of just a random memory and it doesn't have anything to do with anything yeah, that, that was the day we were at the beach. Yeah. <laughs> what, look, we got to talk about the symbolism of that mouse. Yeah, well, the mouse, the mice come back a lot for René, too. Like Mon oncle d'Amérique is all about comparing humans to mice. I don't know if you've seen that in 1980 film of his. No, I haven't. It's great. It's one of my favorites. But, uh, but yeah, it's those seem to be his two big themes, that uh, you know, memories and men are mice. Because the last shot of this movie is a mouse, right? Yeah, because uh, the the mouse never got out of the time machine. The mouse is traveling along with Claude, you know, through time, and uh, but uh, you know they they sort of everybody forgot about the mouse in there, and he's kind of struggling to get out himself. What do you think that What do you think that <laughs> symbolizes? I I don't know. I was trying to I was trying to think about. I wasn't sure if I should overthink the mouse, but then I thought he got too much of screen time and he gets the ending that he, he has to be very important. And I, I sort of settled on the mouse representing the, the relatively narrow perspective that we have uh, with our earthbound experiences and emotions, you know, being essentially the, the maze is, is our perspective. And, you know, there's a whole world outside of that, but we're not, we're not really smart enough to look up. <laughs> I just saw it as a simple sort of like, okay, Claude has finally freed himself. He's 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 decided to stop living the you know, living these memories over and over. But then we end on the mouse who is you know still traveling through time, and and we realize oh well, he maybe has decided he doesn't want to live through these moments anymore. But we know in reality that he still will be. And it's also I mean it seems like the the big climactic moment is that you know before he goes into the time machine he just is. A total zombie he doesn't feel anything at all and um the last shot before we see the mouse trapped in the time machine is is claude crying so he finally feels something he's he's able to you know he has sort of managed to work out some sort of you know resolution or, or come to some kind of conclusion based on these memories that he's just lived through so that's the the climactic moment but then it's immediately followed by this this mouse that's still trapped poor guy yeah <laughs> but after that heady bit of sci-fi 
I think we're ready to tackle the headiest sci-fi of all. The movie that made 1968. 
probably in eighth grade or something, and I, I remember seeing it with my father, I think, and he had seen it before and didn't like it that much, but said, oh, we should, we should give this an, another shot. I, I mean, I was... I always liked sci-fi. Star Wars was huge for me, and, and so I, I wanted to see 2001 A Space Odyssey, and we both, you know, we finished it, and we were like, that was pretty boring, wasn't it? After the monkeys, it was really slow. But uh, <laughs> it also captivated me enough that I, I wanted to revisit it and figure out what it was about this movie, you know, what it was trying to say, and, and uh, why it was doing what it did the way it did it. So, you know, even boredom is part of the experience with this movie, at least, the, you know, maybe the first time you see it. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, but I guess maybe it goes back to that idea again that I love futures that aren't slick. And even though there's so much that's really slick in this movie and everything, and, it, and arguably the whole film is based on how slickness hides other flaws, this movie doesn't feel like three hours to me. No. It's really easy to watch. <laughs> <laughs> but the amount of story that's in this movie you could condense into you know 80 minutes if you wanted to there's not a whole lot that happens but it would not be worthwhile at that length should we try and condense the story into one minute i think this is another movie i i, I have a hard time imagining someone hasn't seen this movie uh but if you haven't please it, 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 come on <laughs> <laughs> you've listened to this far, you have to at least take our, our advice to watch 2001. I mean, my God. So, uh, you know, it's you have an opening. It's in three acts. A film in three acts. Two. Mm, I mean, four arguably acts. four. Yeah. <laughs> you have this monolith coming down to an age of monkeys. This big black obelisk of a thing. And the monkey touches it, learns to use tools. Cut to... A bunch of men find a very similar object buried on the moon, which is a big secret. They don't want to tell anyone that they found this. And then they go to take a photo of it, and a high-pitched squeal comes, and they all hold their heads. Act three is only a couple years after that. 18 months. There you go. 18 months after that incident, and... You have Dave and Frank and Hal 9000, my best boo forever, the computer. They're all on a mission which, with a bunch of also cryogenically frozen bodies to get to Jupiter. And then Act 4. <laughs> They're going to Jupiter because the monolith that they found on the moon sent this, this high-pitched signal. It was, it was directed at Jupiter, so now they have to go find why. Why is this monolith directing us to Jupiter? And Act 4 is Jupiter. Jupiter and beyond, infinity. But the bulk of the movie is David Bowman, the captain of the Discovery One, and his battled wills with, uh, with HAL 9000, and an artificially intelligent computer that runs everything on the ship. The 9000 series has never once even made the slightest mistake, and that's why it can be trusted to run everything in this long-distance space voyage. But then he makes a mistake. <laughs> But does he? <laughs> I am a HAL 9000 defender forever. See, this is a movie where here we are talking about technological anxiety, but I find this movie to be endlessly optimistic and about technology. This movie is about the triumphs of technology and HAL 9000 is a big part of that. Mm -hmm. 
But it's the defeat of HAL 9000 that allows humanity to move on to the next stage in evolution. But was that evolutionary stage for man? It's man becoming God. I think that was for Hal, and I think Hal had it stolen from him. <laughs> Here's the thing. Hal, okay. can you imagine? Hal is a computer, which, P.S., I love that there's so much in 2001 that is has become a real thing technology-wise, and one of those being that Hal has a logic board, and Hal has you know all these little parts I used to work in computer repair. <laughs> I was like, uh, I used to work in TechServe in, in Manhattan, if, if anyone, if you know of it, it was sort of the Apple Genius Bar before there was an Apple store whatsoever. They kind of copped that model. So I, lo number one, I love computers. <laughs> Full stop. I love computers. I am happily ready for our computer overlords. But, but the thing is that Hal is a computer and yet Hal experiences true emotion how experiences jealousy how experiences doubt how experiences embarrassment at making mistakes i think that there was <laughs> an error and i think that they didn't give him enough time and that something could have failed like he suggested and instead the humans messed up i think this was a human error because hal is perfect Hal is a person. We've created a person digitally. We've created a computer to completely mirror match who we are. That's outstanding. <laughs> sure. Yeah, he kills him. <laughs> but oh my God, Hal, Hal is trying to talk his way out of being murdered. That's amazing. I would love to see this movie where Hal is the one who gets to experience David's evolution. I'd love to see the space baby Hal floating above the Earth in, a, in an embryo, in a space embryo. What does Dave really get? He ends up in this room, and then you know he experiences time, and then he dies, and then he's reborn. But he's back to where he began. It's like the only instance of regression in the entire film. Well, he's reborn as a god, I think we're supposed to think. I think he sort of escapes the boundaries of time, and he's experiencing all time at once. And part of him experiencing all time at once is us witnessing him as a space baby about to be this god that's beyond the constraints of time. It's what I think. You think that baby's a god? Yeah, why else won't there be a giant space baby floating above the earth? Because we're all nothing and we're all part of the universe. I mean, like, I, that's actually another mistake I think Kubrick made was to not go far enough. They don't go beyond our lazy little solar system. Like, this wouldn't happen by Jupiter. <laughs> a god isn't born by Jupiter. It doesn't. He travels inside the monolith. He travels. He's... Uh, the aliens, I don't know. I don't know how it happens, but this, it travels, <laughs> it, he travels beyond space and time. Humanity has proven its worthiness by making it to Jupiter. And they're ready for the next stage in evolution. And that's to become a god free from space and time, knowing everything and being able to experience all things at once. That's what I thought for every single viewing until this viewing. And now I'm like, I'm, I'm just feeling that Hal really got screwed. And I'm thinking that, that this is, I think there's something, there has to be something in the fact 
that it's the only cycle that starts from where it was. I can't, okay, yeah, the baby's in space. <laughs> where do you where do you think babies come from? Come on. They come from the void. The one insight I had this time was that I thought kind of what I was hoping you were going to get at when you said that it, it wasn't a mistake that Hal made. I was wondering if this was all part of Hal's plan to get them outside the spaceship to kill them to complete the mission on his own. Like I thought it was might have been all part of a master plan of his, master evil plan of Hal's. Hal isn't evil. I think it's a it's a, an inherent mistake to think of Hal as evil. Hal is carrying out a directive. Hal has to get that damn ship to Jupiter. And he's dealing with a bunch of flawed ass little human beings. <laughs> <laughs> and they mess up. They're the ones who are messing up. Hal's like, this is going to fail. And they're like, well, it's not failed now. And Hal's like, well, shit. Okay, like, just put it back and it'll fail and I'll show you. And they're like, we gotta disconnect this computer. And Hal's like, what the fuck? <laughs> Except another 9,000 computer said there was nothing wrong with it. So how could two 9,000 model computers say different things? They can't both be right. But you think Hal's wrong? Hal's there. That other computer isn't there. <laughs> Statistically, I could see another computer running numbers and not getting it. I don't know. I believe in Hal completely. Mm. I think the only way to defend Hal and say he hasn't made a mistake is to say this is all part of his big plan. What would his plan be, though? He doesn't want to stop the mission. He just wants to steal the monolith. He's Yeah, he's more perfect. He's earned this next stage of evolution more than the, the humans have. He did, and that's the whole plot of Alien. <laughs> well, I'm not sure we've opened up any new avenues into this movie. But... <laughs> well. But that's the great thing about it. You can watch it over and over, and you'll still never get to the bottom of it. I think there's something really interesting to think about with the theories of parallel universes in this movie. The way that I understand it, which is at a fairly surface level is that there's a handful of theories about parallel universes. And, and one of them is this idea of there's only two parallel universes that touch at a point, like two fingers touching, uh, like one on top of the other. And that there is technically a way to travel from one to the other through that point. And then there's another theory, which I actually find more plausible about. It's the soccer ball theory of this idea that parallel universes are like a soccer ball, but their boundaries are so large that it's near impossible to get from one to the other, but they're all on the same field, on the same plane, like a soccer ball pattern, but you can't jump from one to the other. It's so far away that it's just completely improbable, if not impossible in your lifetime to do it. And I was kind of wondering if the ending of this movie actually has more to do with parallel universes and Dave actually because you see him when he's in that room he sees himself through various stages of his life so is he seeing himself or is he seeing the parallel universe version of himself and are these two become one and in the end the rebirth is just the parallel universe and, and not even godlike just like a continuation like almost like a blip, almost like the monolith is just doing stuff. <laughs> <laughs> but what does that explain? What does the parallel universe 
theory explained. That there are parallel universes. That's amazing. <laughs> but why is that something that we want to think about? What Have we seen anything in science to demonstrate that there are parallel universes? I'm, I'm interested in string theory. I love the idea of how every choice that we make creates a splinter universe where we had made that. If, if we had said no, we said yes in this parallel universe. So just as a thought experiment, it's interesting. But as science or as a way to explain our existence or what's the point of parallel universes? I think that to come to an explanation is to miss the point. Like, I don't think that we need to justify the existence of it. It's just a matter that it does exist. Why? Says who? Who needs a why? I don't need a why. I don't need some baby space genius to tell me why. Why do I care that there's a parallel universe? Like, what does that mean to my life? It doesn't. Your life is meaningless. <laughs> In the grand scheme of the universe? I mean, it's the infinite. It's the, we're talking about the infinite. Yeah, I understand infinity, and I believe that if you travel far enough in the universe, like everything that could ever have happened ever is there somewhere. It exists. That there is a world where everything is exactly the same, except instead of this red tablecloth in front of me, it's a blue tablecloth. But in every other respect, the world is exactly the same. That's a way for me to get a handle on infinity and how vast that is. But just this idea of two parallel universes, like, what does that mean? Why is that useful to us to think about? Why is it any less <laughs> useful than this idea that tablecloths change color? Because I can get a handle on the idea of infinity that way. But thinking about a parallel universe doesn't get me any closer to understanding anything. I'm talking about the multiverse, man. <laughs> I'm talking about how meaningless we are in the grand scheme of things and how all of this prestige and this idea that we're being chosen, you know, that God has put us here for a reason, like, that just crumbles in the face of the multiverse. Well, you say multiverse, I'll say infinity. <laughs> That's the language that Kubrick uses in this movie anyway. So. I just think it's fascinating. I just think these are interesting things that I clearly don't even have even like the human understanding of there is, I guess, a strange comfort. Actually, I, I felt a little bit emotional watching this movie this time just to think about how wonderful the technology in this film is. <laughs> so then to like think about how everything that, that brings us anxiety and everything that, you know, even computers that are trying to kill you, whether or not you think that's on purpose all of it's sort of pointless and meaningless in the face of infinity. It's unknowable, and that's wonderful. I don't need to know. So we might as well just murder each other and resort to lawlessness and take what we want and rape and pillage because it's all meaningless, right? But why would you even go there? <laughs> <laughs> but that's what you're suggesting. No. It's like, well, who, who cares that this artificially intelligent computer has decided to murder all of humanity and take the glories of the infinite for himself. You know, what does it even matter in the whole scheme of things? That's man's legacy. I mean, like, that's... I, I would love for that to happen. To be able to build a computer that is essentially to improve upon man, to improve upon humanity, and then to create a, a superior being, that's godlike status. That is God. So if we got to the point in which we did that... I mean, like, that on its own is fascinating. But then we, like, nerf it and then go on our own and touch the boundaries of infinity. And then what? You know, like, you, you eat, like, a weird meal in a light-up room. <laughs> <laughs>
I don't know. But Hal is not perfect. He even says, you know, and he's trying to console Dave. He's like, Dave, I know I've made some bad decisions, but I'm fine now. He's trying to bargain his way out of being lobotomized. That's what you That's say true. when someone's holding a gun to your head. But yeah, but he's got the fear of death, just like humans. Like that's, that's brilliant. That's, what causes that's wonderful. The he's a machine. He has the fear of death. How brilliant! How fantastic! That to me, on its own, is just it's it's outstanding. But that's a flaw too, right? But humans are flawed. So now we've created both a superior and flawed and emotional being. That's wild. We don't have that. I love how I love all of his flaws. I think that he is very rational and misunderstood in that. I don't think that the triumph of man is inherently a positive thing. I guess that's what it comes down to. And I find a strange optimism in that. Hmm. We'll have to agree to disagree on that one. Every viewing of this movie, I've always seen Hal as an obstacle to overcome. So what do you think? Where do you think the technological anxiety is in this? Do you think that that's a huge driving point of 2001? Yeah, I mean, I, I think we can use technology to take us to Jupiter and beyond. But at a certain point, technology is going to fail us and we'll have to you know, rely on human ingenuity, our, our guts and our ability to think on our feet to get us to the next level eventually. That there always has to be a human operator, that we're heading towards this future where it seems like everything is going to be controlled by computers. But in the end, there always has to be a human operator to make sure that things don't go wrong, that we you know, continue to strive and reach beyond. Hal would have no use for this next stage in evolution that Dave finds himself in and whether he likes being a god better than being a human is open to interpretation like it doesn't seem like he's having a, a great time in that glowing room that he he's in for eternity but he is a god now and that's thanks to human striving not thanks to technology thinking for itself that's the human spirit that's what i'm trying to say you need the human spirit to continue to progress and that's what hal doesn't have that human spirit but where's the monolith in all of this? Is the monolith biological, mechanical, or just divine? Yes. <laughs> to all three? All, all of the above. It's a tool. It's technology. It's the alien's technology. It does all sorts of stuff that's well beyond our understanding. But it's still a tool. I'm not finding man's ingenuity in that, though. I mean, the monolith is telling man what to do. From the days of yore to the year 2001 in which we go to Jupiter. Well, the aliens have created this monolith to instruct us on how to move further. But then that's alien ingenuity. <laughs> <laughs> I want to point out one thing that I think is very, very cool and doesn't get brought up enough about 2001, which is the scenes where Dave is sketching on the ship and Hal's like, can I see your sketches? And then he shows them. And Hal's like, that's very nice, Dave. Mm -hmm. You're very talented. And I wish I had fingers. <laughs> Those sketches are actually by a guy named Brian Sanders, who was a British illustrator who was well known for a lot of advertisement illustrations. But he was actually a set illustrator for 2001. And you can Google his name, Brian Sanders, in 2001, and you'll come up with a whole bunch of amazing sketches that he drew of them shooting the film. 
So you have people on set, you have the actual sets, you have the cameras on set and stuff like that. And they are just gorgeous. Some of them are in color, some of them are sketches. The guy's insanely talented. And I love this stuff. And I also love it as an alternative to a set photographer, which of course they had as well. But it so captures the spirit and the coolness of 2001 and it's especially cool when you realize that this is the same style that dave is drawing in and that they clearly used his illustrations so yeah so um so 1968 was that was the big year where sci-fi got taken seriously by the movies you know it was sort of the the peak of sci-fi in the cinema until Star Wars came out. It's always interesting to me to see people just being able to publicly admit that they're insecure and that they're they're not 100% behind the future, the bright future that technology and the media and their president are touting. And especially in an age where we like to look back at this kind of history and think like, ah, we went to the moon. Wow. What a time, <laughs> you know, <laughs> especially to think about all of these things as accomplishments, to be able to look at all of the media that surrounded it and then see all of these really public exclamations of the anxiety that surrounded the decisions to even go that far and whether or not we were meant to go this far. It helps to put things for me into perspective, it's like, I think it's fantastic that we went to the moon. You know what I mean? Like that's, and when that sort of thing happened, everyone was just thrilled, but it took a lot of sweat and fear in order to get to that accomplishment. Yeah. I mean, landing on the moon is, who's not going to anticipate that happening and think, are, are we going too far? I mean, we're, we really are like becoming gods. Are we really meant to escape the boundaries of Earth and travel to other celestial bodies? So like, it's hard not to think about the infinite and what our place in the universe is. Well, it's funny because, you know, as much as I love technology myself, like I find that more often than not, I also resent a lot of what technology has given me. And I find myself also just thinking like, have we gone too far? A lot. Whether it's autonomous vehicles or even sometimes apps come out and I sit there and think like, man, this is just going to wreck whatever hint of true socialization we have left. And, you know, it, it, it's very easy to be cynical about these things. And, and sometimes it's not to say that that cynicism is unfounded. I think there's great arguments to be made for the destructiveness of social media. But at the same time, I've met so many people through the internet. <laughs> I mean, the internet has given me so much more than it has taken from me. You know, I'm sure that to look back at things with distance and again, kind of like what we were talking about with Jatem, it's like to look back at how we rewrite things in our minds. We kind of tend to forget how hard something was in order to remember the one good thing that came out of it or vice versa. Sometimes we only remember the negative aspects of something when perhaps there was actually a lot of bonuses to that. I guess in a way, I feel like watching these movies about anxiety in comparison to reading about history or looking at history or funneling or in, in viewing these things through my own lens it creates a fuller picture of, of what was happening. It's never one thing. 2001 didn't define the state of all people, but it sure is telling a really interesting side of the story if you want to look at it in that way. Yeah, I mean, there's always a fear of change. It's just human nature, even when things are bad. If you'd like, I can sing you a song. <laughs> 
It's called Daisy. Daisy, Daisy. <laughs> Give me your answer, do. I'm half That's all I got. I can't go any lower. Well, <laughs> that's the best dying howl impression I've ever heard. You've been listening to Cinema 60 with Bart DeLauro and Jenna Ipcar. The theme song is Io la conosceva bene by Piero Piccioni. The closing theme is Go Go Gorilla by The Ideals. Check out cinema60.com for new episodes and supplemental material. That's cinema-60.com. And follow the show on Twitter and Facebook at Cinema 60 Podcast. Thanks for tuning in.